I'm just going to tell um, the others that I'm, that I'm starting this podcast early so they know Cool. So, you know, so how's things, Jeff? Okay, you've been you've been crunching. Uh, right? Yeah, all right. Just um, I've been you know fucking this kind of deadline hell now for for a long time, much longer than we should have been. And it's it's um, if I look at another spreadsheet again, I think I'll yeah load. You know, it's just it's the embodied carbon calculation. It's amazing. Um, yeah. And you know we're learning an awful lot. That's all great. But yeah, it's just head wrecking at the moment. You know, it's just it's the stupid thing of trying to be right. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. especially when you're doing something like the current, the current thing I'm, I'm doing for the new issue is um is analyzing eleven different wall types. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same house, uh, same same U value and, uh, and and so on, and um and it's you you run the risk of annoying people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. There'll be suppliers who will feel yeah. not, their noises, their, their noses are out of joint if you um yeah if you get if you get it wrong. Oh, well, I mean, surely you hope to annoy some of them. Well, yeah. that's fine. We don't know who we hope to annoy until we see the results. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. this is it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, th- I think what you what you were saying was, uh, I think where this is really interesting is it's the renewables that I'm really interested in because I mean, no, there, I don't think there's a level of scrutiny perhaps on the renewables as there is on you know on on other materials, and I think that will be really interesting because we just look at PV just now. We don't really think about we think about PV in terms of, in terms of the financial cost, but you know I think that's something that's really interesting. We we, we were talking Dan Alex to to Leah, and she said there's like um. Or was it her? Is it somebody else that said there's a year's waiting list to get PV? A year? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, wow, it's bonkers, you know? Yeah. Isn't there a good talk about the some of the, the, the semiconductors, whatever, there being shortages of them? I think, I don't yeah. know if that's Ukraine related or, or, or more. Of it. It's the whole global supply chain yeah. related business because China keeps shutting down. China's, yeah. China's the workshop of the world. Mm. Yeah, and then you've got. The, I mean, the Ukraine stuff hasn't even hit yet. No, no. That's that's what two years down the line. I was talking to a property manager. I spoke to him about getting him on the podcast because he's yeah. into passive house. He was saying he's got clients that have just they were looking to develop blocks mm. and they've just knocked it on the head just because of the war in Ukraine. There's yeah. no sense planning spending money on any of it when you yeah. know that the the costs are going to double or triple when it comes to materials two years down the line. Yeah. If if they'd broken ground six months ago, they mm-hmm. might be in a position to see it through. But mm-hmm. but now, because the margins being what they are in construction, yeah, yeah. it's just not worth their while. And uh, yeah, and and you know, I, I sent something on to um, the guys in, in uh, the UN and, and an economist article talking about just right now. And let's let's be honest, we're probably we're probably just at the start of this kind of conflict. It's probably just going to rumble on for you know I don't know another six months until there's some kind of bloody stalemate in the east. So uh, the economist was saying there's a hundred. Optimistic, to be honest. Yeah, I think you're probably right, Jeff. Yeah, I think you're probably right. But I mean, uh, the economist was says a hundred and twenty billion dollars of infrastructure required right now because of the damage and because of destruction and you think there must be easy a million houses that are damaged or uninhabitable I mean, for what you see i mean it's just insane mm-hmm. you know um horrible i mean what, what's that going to do and this is interesting if we are recording this this is you know i, I i'm fascinated in where this where this could go you know obviously you have to look at the you know the horrible context and it but will this will this force pressures in new build that will start us to look at elsewhere because you know are we go, are we only going to build new build where it's financially viable, which means higher end new build because people can afford it. Because I don't know, I think the pressures you'll find in the market from uh, what's going on in Ukraine might might force us to to certainly not build as much as we've been building. Yeah, well, yeah. I think 
that's that's one of the few positives out of this situation. I mean, to call it a positive isn't even right because it's it's still born of a, a proper shitty situation. Yeah. But like forcing people to reckon with the home stock, looking at it purely from an embodied carbon perspective, mm. like yeah, man, that there's always an opportunity in war. Like folk always make money. It's never yeah. going to be us. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's horrible that that's yeah, the, so we're going to be eco spivs. No, pardon, eco spivs. Retro spivs. Yeah, that's yeah. it. <laughs> Retro spivs. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, holding your coat open and just showing people the lining, and it's just lining. Imagine what you can do yeah. with this. <laughs> yeah, I know. But <laughs> well, just watches to recycle. <laughs> so, so I, th- I Sorry, do Alex. think I do think that um, I haven't read. I must admit, before I start getting on about report, I haven't <laughs> I haven't read. I've skimmed. I've skimmed the summary page, but I did like that ramble report. I mean, there's there's a headline out of it. I'm not sure if it comes directly from it or whether somebody's kind of paraphrased it, but new build is stealing your future. I think it's really, you know, that's the one that um, we're going to get the guy coming on. Lars, is it Lars Riemann? He's he's agreed to come on. I think that's a really interesting, it's not UK based. I think they did it in like four countries, Holland, Belgium, I don't know if you saw it, Alex, but I think it was, I think it was France, not sure. But um, they're talking about embodied carbon and how unsustainable house building in terms of climate change. So I'm quite interested in that. Oh man, that sounds proper interesting. Is it that does. the guy you emailed last week? Yeah, he came back straight away. I said, listen, just, you know, I've skimmed it. looks really good. Will you want to come on? And he said, yeah, no problem. So, I mean, and that, you know, this is, this is great because what, what we don't, because I think a lot of the time what we do here is everyone's agreeing with us, you know, I'll, you know, but I think what would be quite good is this is quite a contentious issue because most of the people that listen to us, you know, um, will favour some form of new build. I'm quite sure most most people do, but I think this would be quite a good a good point because not not everyone will agree with it. Well, but it'd be interesting to see the see the see the stats. We have finally found an issue we can't agree on. Yeah, like, that's interesting. Yeah. What's interesting is this is an instance where the market is dictating something, and we're all interpreting it differently. Hmm. Like we had a chat with a big Scottish developer the other week, Alex and I met him and we were chatting with their head of sustainability about their commitment to Passive House. And they were talking about, they were one of the few people talking about a supply chain business, about Mm. they were having to marshal their supply chain to meet their standards because the supply chain wasn't necessarily geared up to be able to manage Passive House standards. Right. So we asked him like, why Passive House? He said, well, to be perfectly honest, like we are interested in it, we are keen on it, but that's what we're being asked to do. People are asking us for it, and so we're gearing up to do it. Like what you said was totally fair. I think I've been able to ask because I mean, I get we've mentioned this. I mean, Jeff, we uh, we mentioned you on the uh, the podcast with uh, Laura Debarro, you know, without you being there. So obviously, apologies, but you know, we were, say, we were saying that you were the. <laughs> The one who was, you know, absolutely that the only way forward. And again, I'm, I'm exaggerating a bit, but you know, yeah. the only way forward is uh, passive house, and you can't do anything else, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And we, it was the argument about the uh, the snakes under the doors and stuff like that. So we were saying, again, we're exaggerating a bit, but something yeah. with what you said, Dan, is that oh, are we not getting to a point maybe where passive house is being used as a marketing tool like, yeah. for companies who are just saying, well, we're following this because people are asking for it. So we're just mm-hmm. saying we're doing this, but 
does it mean when you're saying you're doing passive house, does it mean you're getting certified passive house? Because you can just follow yeah. also the... Uh, yeah. You know, the, the, a lot of people talk about passive house principles. Oh, don't get John started on passive house principles. I mean, yeah. quite, oh, yeah. I mean, hold your nose with that one. I, John, I think. John Bootland, you mean? Yeah, I mean, he's yeah. quite right because, I mean, I think that's... Oh, uh, name names there, give him his credit. Well, yeah, I mean, John, <laughs> I mean, you know, I think John is absolutely right because passive house is there as a defined standard, which, well, is defined and calculated and then assessed during the construction phase. So I can tell, I, I think, you know, it's a bit like me saying, you know, it's Coca-Cola, but, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to call it Coca-Cola. It's, it's black. <laughs> you know, I, d- yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I think it's like, well, you know, yeah, password principles, you're, you're, you're agreeing to, to air tightness, but what, you're not going to test it? No, I, I, I'm, well, this I, is I, it. The, the problem is that there, there are, legitimate kind of gray areas in this case too i mean even the institute themselves mm. passive house institute will draw a distinction between the number of certified passive houses in the world and the number of passive houses yeah. in the world. yeah um, yeah yeah, yeah. So, so um when what's you the, what's the difference then yeah so so there's a certification if you if you go if you go certified you, you have to engage with passive house consultant and that passive and, and you have to and sometimes it can be the same person but you have to you have to have it independently assessed and audited for, for example, by a pacifier certifier. There's a small number of pacifier certifiers and they are accredited by the Pacifier Institute in Germany. But those those people allow allow the Pacifier Institute the comfort that the process and the delivery has been handled in a compliant way. Uh, now that costs a wee bit of money, but I suppose what you could look at that there is a very, and this is a crude analogy, but as 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 a way of building standard, you know, as a, what your building standards officer, you know, and, and an idea of insurance in a way. Yeah, ex- ex- exactly. So your builder can say, "Oh yeah, pacifies principles, mate. Don't worry. I've, I've I'll put the blower door test on it. You don't have to worry about this." But yeah. the reality is, your consultant's there. So can, it's yeah. like American champagne. Yeah, <laughs> like, there's a nod to the the tradition. Yeah. No, 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 that's what I mean. That, that is, reminds me of that wonderful no, no, Orson Welles ad where he's drunk. <laughs> Uh, was drunk for the Charles Masson uh, champagne, and he's getting progressively drunker and drunker. Take up, yeah, it's oh, absolutely brilliant. brilliant. That's it's something brilliant. we'll have. Should we put that in the link? We can add that, yeah. Well, no, I think the, the American one, like they put champagne as a, a cipher for sparkling wine, like so yeah. they don't follow the yeah. traditional method, they just they do their own thing and they call it champagne. But even in France, you can follow the same method, but unless you're from yeah. the region, certified, yeah. as it were, you can't call it. I wouldn't yeah. have thought that you would. I would have thought it's kind of protected uh, trademark, or whatever, uh, in the same way that you know Parmaham is and so on. You know, well, you can make your own Parmaham in America. You can make your own braid. Like none yeah. of that. None of the the. You know what? I have friends in America. Restrictions. Stand. I have friends from Seattle who, um, uh, growing up, yeah, Chris is a massive. Uh, I'll say massive. Program and Red Hot Chili Peppers fan, in case he ever hears this, because he hates both of them. Apparently, I don't know how I heard this because I, I also have a, a, a contempt for both bands. And um, but, but one of the Red Hot Chili Peppers has joined Program. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like the I don't, I don't like the Chili Peppers either. I feel as if I'm on my own in that one. So I, I just never liked them. I know that sounds kind of. There you go. Yeah, so, I don't think that would be. It uh, wouldn't be an. Uh, I don't know about Alex, but I think that would be an unpopular opinion with Dan either. Anyway, you know. I think they're a very funny band. Yeah. Like I mean, you know, they're they're just not for me. They're no. for other people. That is fine. Yeah. But I think they sound really funny now. 
because <laughs> they're all old men now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and they still have to talk as well, oh, everything, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we yeah. saw, we were walking around Lisbon when we were on holiday the other week. We saw posters for Deep Purple who were on a European tour of some sort. Yeah. And it's like four proper old blokes <laughs> so, it's trying to look cool. Like standing like 16-year-olds in yeah. a, a press photograph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very strange. I remember seeing some photos of Ginger or documentary footage of Ginger Baker recently and just the state of like the proper, like, you know, daughtery old pensioner. It's, it's hard to get your head around. Yeah. Um, but Chris and Aaron, anyway, um, Aaron, her parents growing up, I don't think were, I don't think her mum was uh, the typical waspy American mum. So uh, they both had jobs and were very kind of corporate, I think. And so there was the stuff they would be forced to eat. One of the things was chicken in a can, a whole, a whole chicken. <laughs> <laughs> the videos you can find on YouTube—it looks like it's uh, like Vaseline it up or something like that. Uh, Slap out of the can, you know. Oh, 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 <laughs> enjoy that. You're going to have those wonderful uh, US food standards. Those products are going to be coming to a supermarket near you. <laughs> oh man, yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, yeah. I mean, they're, they're struggling to get that through now, which mm. adds to everything. Given that uh, Joe Biden doesn't like the English, <laughs> oh, yeah, brilliant! Yeah, yeah. yeah, I know. I just wondered if you wanted to talk about okay, a few things this week, hasn't there? Been that ramble report, but there was also the kind of the the kind of headline thing. Was it Monday, Tuesday about and in UK? Sorry, Jeff. No, this is very UK centered, but about energy energy strategy, wasn't it? Energy strategy, which comprises of eight nuclear facilities, and I can't remember what else. Um, I kind of paid a bit of attention, but. I saw the kind of media storm when it came out, but again, you know, there's no real mention of of reducing demand or energy efficiency, and I think there seems to be, you know, it's it's a wild one at the minute that you can't you can't get a handle on what's going on because the the politicians in power they don't really want to intervene, they want to leave it mm. to the market. Yeah. So I don't know if you saw, but like the first response was, "Let's do fracking again." I know. Like, yeah, so oh, ah, like fracking ah. is a, a failed system. Like, yeah. it's a brilliant way of extracting money out of a state. But yeah. It also leaves pollution and doesn't deliver that much energy. Like, there are vast profits in it in the first yeah. couple of years, and then there's a long tail cost, which yeah. leaves everyone unsatisfied. The thing is, is that we everyone just goes for the easiest solution. Like, mm. putting up a, a couple of nuclear plants is going to mm. be far, unfortunately, far easier than mm-hmm. it is to, to retrofit all, all, yeah. all, all our housing. So obviously everyone's going to go for that because we always go for the yeah. easy solution, and that's the big problem. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Years to See, that's the thing. Like The the ideas that are being mooted, they're not going to deliver what we need in anything mm. like the time. But like, nuclear is a belting idea. Like I remember mm. being convinced by George Monbiot. Yeah. Uh, years, yeah. Like 10 years ago or whenever he was doing it, when he yeah. was... He was banging on like, don't like saying this, but nuclear is the only yeah. viable option. If we're not going to do any of the other stuff, if we're yeah. not going to reduce demand, nuclear is the only way. The only problem with nuclear is because of the way our economy is set up, the cheapest version is the is always the one that we go yeah. for. And nuclear would be fine if we invested proper money in yeah. preventing the mess that could obviously occur after it. Everyone's lived through several of them. Everyone. Mm. Post Chernobyl. Post Sellafield, I don't know. Are there any good ones in France, Alex? That you know? <laughs> no, but Chernobyl. Like the important thing was with Chernobyl in France is that it stopped at the border. They told us in 1986. <laughs> <laughs> now stopped, so we, we were okay. No worries. But, there. but France, it's interesting, Alex, because you know um, France is is probably it must be the outside of the Soviet 
country, the ex-Soviet countries, must be the biggest nuclear project or nuclear. I suppose the, the the issue over here is less about the effectiveness of it, more about the environmental impact and about storage waste and stuff like that. But is that is that is there a different perception in France? Is is, is uh... I mean, there's a, there's an interesting perspective. I mean, it's been nuclear has been part of uh, you know our energy plan in France for yeah. a very long time, so it's been very yeah. well established, and it's in a sense we don't talk about it. So when I, for example, when yeah. I hear about the nuclear power stations in in England, they sound like a bit of a scary thing, whereas mm. in France we seem to be talking about them as just, you know, here is our, our power station. I know yeah. some of them are, are being decommissioned, but, you know, EDF is probably building a few more as well. Yeah. And uh, I, I have lost a bit of, you know, I've lost touch with what's going on from a nuclear perspective in France, I must yeah. say, in the last few years, but it's not, there's no, not as much uh, stigma attached. So we're not, yeah. we're not seeing it as a, a, the thing that's being raised is not the problem of nuclear. It's just, you know, well, okay, we've got to build a few more. One has been decommissioned. Yes, but it's not like in, in England where there's an actual, uh, I think people are a bit concerned and, and they're suspicious, yeah. I think, as well. So it that just adds to the problem. So yes, now people are saying, let's go and do nuclear because we've got this problem with Russia. So it's the big yeah. solution. But I don't, it's just, yeah. like, I don't know, the dialogue and the, the narrative around it is just a bit yeah. inconsistent, I think, all, all around. It's interesting because Jeff, Jeff, you, you know, you've been doing embodied carbon calcs, <laughs> embodied carbon calcs, calcs all week. But I suppose one thing that I, I, and I genuinely don't know this, but I'd like to know the answer to it is: so, we, we, if you have the debate about nuclear just now, you will have the counter argument about the dangers, environmental impact, and so on. And I get that. Okay, that's fine. But you know, how many wind farms will it take to replicate? Um, you know, a nuclear plant. And what is the carbon difference in, in body carbon? Because, okay, a shed load of concrete in a nuclear plant, we know that. Um, but what's the comparable wind farms uh, associated with that? And and and, it'd be, and I'd be really interested in some study that showed me what the embodied calc difference was between, an, a, you know, an average nuclear plant and the equivalent um, um, wind. Because I've, there's a local wind farm up near it's called White Lees, not far away. And it's cracking. It's brilliant. They've, they've done it really well because you can cycle and walk and run between all the, the big turbines. The turbines are enormous. But what strikes me is that, the, you know, the metal, the concrete and, and the infrastructure involved in that must be significant. So I'd, I'd like to know. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. It's, it's definitely something to be looking at. I mean, you know, with when when it comes to to buildings and and the, the calcs we've been doing on PV, for instance, in in the context of of some buildings published in the new magazine, the figures are in some cases breathtakingly high. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I should say we haven't taken account of the operational carbon savings. We're just looking at the upfront. Yeah. and lifespan in terms of replacement of components and, and stuff. So uh, I, I should, and also it's important to say that the story that that people will see in the new issue uh, in this regard shows that different brands of solar PV uh, yeah. module have massively different results in embodied carbon. So I've still got to do some final checking over this, but it's, there are some uh, monocrystalline modules, and it's strictly all monocrystalline, but I gather at the moment that are I think probably less than a quarter, maybe less than 20%, I don't know if to double check, of the emissions of some of the other systems. You know, and you could just, it can make an absolutely enormous difference. Uh, yeah. And you can find in some cases that if you don't, uh, depending on how big the array is, and we've got one building in the next issue uh, where uh, it's got a PV roof on it. Um, and I mean, a 185 square meter array, so it's an enormous array. Um, yeah. But in that case, the embodied carbon of the the PV array is substantially bigger than the entire building that it's sitting under wow. sitting underneath wow. it, and that's mm. just 
the mind boggles at that. Yeah. Uh, so we do need to get a, uh, a handle on this for sure. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. You know. You know what we need, Jeff? Somebody needs to put a calculator together to measure embodied carbon. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is exactly what I mean, Duncan. Ecospiv. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh yeah, I've got a calculator. Oh, I calculate, uh, right. uh, step into my office. <laughs> yeah, uh, come over here. Oh, mate. how much carbon do you want? Oh, you want less than that? Yeah, no problem. Yeah, no yeah. problem. No, no, I'll sort you out. <laughs> so, do you remember? I don't know if I'm of a certain age. Remember those watches when we were school kids? You remember the big calculator watches, you know, the big yeah. massive things, like one of those, you know? So you're like, okay, what is it? This is good. If we're going to stick this out, this is controversial because we're talking about should we build as many new homes, you know, as as pacifist principles, just really, you know, tipping your tipping yeah. your hat to something. Well, why don't we take on that subject of new homes then, you know? Because mm. um, I think I think it's interesting. My view on it would be that I think it's too simplistic to come up with firm answers one way or the other. I think you need to see the data. I yeah. think from doing, I think from doing embodied carbon calcs on deep retrofit and on new builds, um, you can find that sometimes a deep retrofit can be very close to a new build mm-hmm. in terms of emissions. Uh, I think it's important to, rather than making glib assertions, and I guess you kind of have to when you're trying to not send people to sleep. Yes, to some do- of us can't help ourselves. <laughs> You need to do the number crunching um, and then make your glib assertions. Boring, you know? boring. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. but I you think... know, like because there's leanness. You know, you can you can find a really lean. And, the, and the, I think one of the things that's exciting for me about this, this process is that you can sort through all of the the, the marketing jargon and the nonsense um, and the confusion when you when you actually do the number crunching. And I feel like we're in a place now where we're getting to to actually really be able to answer these questions about the. Yeah. The, the amount of carbon it takes to, to build a building and to retrofit a building and so on. And that 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 can inform, it doesn't just stop there. You're not just mm-hmm. calculating um, how bad the, the, you know, the crime you've committed is. You can actually prevent the crime or you can reduce the crime. Um, you, you know, you, you can end up in a situation where, you, you you know, if you do this early enough, calculation tools like the H-Ribbon, the AECB's uh, tool uh, that are intuitive enough to use and that are transparent enough to show you how they work, you can actually take decisions early on in a project that will transform, radically reduce the amount of carbon uh, that you're putting into that building and potentially reduce construction costs depending on how you do it as well. Because leanness is one of the key things. The best result we've ever seen for a building was for a very, very lean uh, modular timber frame building um, that, you know, that did well in part because there was so little material in the building, you know. So what sort of lifespan are you looking at for a building like that? Because that's that's one of the things that I just didn't think about until I think it was probably you that pointed it out to me, like that you've got to think in long term. And then we were working with a developer client and we asked them the question and they were reluctant to put a number. Actually, it was the, the that Dutch fella. I think it was Dutch. Ron something. Oh, Ronald Rovers. Ronald Rovers. Yeah. Sounds yeah. like a made up name. Ronald of the Rovers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he he talked about the fallacy that putting a lifespan, putting a, a, a best before label on a building, there is an absolute fallacy to it. But mm-hmm. instinctively, you feel like if you're talking about building a lean building, mm-hmm. the buildings that have tended to last are the ones that were built very solidly. Yeah. I'm, I'm talking like Norman Castle, stuff like that. Yeah. But even then, uh, 
Yeah, you're not going. We're, we're talking. About, we're talking about different parts of the building. I think it was you, Jeff, that said. You know, you've got the the structure of the building itself. It will last 100, 200 years. It's usually the stuff around it. You know, yeah. let's say the cladding or the windows or or the the functions inside it. But usually, the, the building itself, when it's built, it just lasts. So there's a lot of like differences in like what 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 does it mean to have a building lifespan? It can vary in, depending on what your angle is. Yeah, like the historic average uh, stock replacement rate in in the UK is 0.5%. So that indicates for housing, it indicates a 200-year lifespan um, for for, for English housing or for UK housing. And, of course, if you look at some of the stuff built in the 20th century, whether for architectural reasons, you know, failed experiments uh, in brutalism or whatever that that looked, you know, lovely to some architects, but to the occupants, you know, and and weren't loved and Mm. get torn down. Or some of the PFI style disasters um, from you know the Thatcher and Blairite kind of times that, have, that are being torn down now in some cases. So there, you've got those kinds of issues to wrestle with, um, and that's not about leanness per se. It is it is about value engineering in the sense in that euphemistic sense of using yeah. you'd mean tearing the arts out of and just building the piece of crap you can, you know. Um, but leanness doesn't have to mean less robust, and heavier doesn't necessarily mean more robust. Uh, there are Lots of buildings, old, you know, very old buildings that are very lean. Um, mm-hmm. The buildings, the, the, the critical thing I think is for me with this, and it's not reflected in the way that it should be yet in building life cycle assessment, is consideration of building physics and of uh, of the quality of the building approach uh, and the impact that that'll have on the lifespan. It does come into it to some extent. Like I'm looking at some German, I was looking at a German um, uh, environmental project declaration for render systems, as you do the other day. Um, and um, it had um, uh, either a 40-year lifespan according to the German standards or said the system will last as long as the lifespan of the building, provided it properly how it's installed, um, with particular attention to how it's installed around, say, uh, you know, connections to other buildings or connections to other building parts, like a window, it would be a, a key example. And if you've got, you know, more exposed locations where you've got like high levels of horizontal rain, as we'd have in large parts of Ireland and, and certain parts of the UK as well, Scotland and so on, they're placing huge stress on buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that kind of stuff needs to come into it. But no, you could be lean and, uh, and, Still deliver a really, really good building. You know, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's a fallacy propagated by, I guess, uh, certainly within the concrete industry. There's that that argument just has been going on for years, and this, this sense that, like, I'll give an example in Ireland to get longer lifespan uh, certifications on external installation render systems. Sorry for going so taking the down this kind of boring rabbit hole so quickly. The manufacturers were required to basically double the thickness of their renders and and go to heavier duty kind of mechanical fixings. The tech people in these companies were pulling their hair out of this thing. You know, uh, if we double the thickness of the renders, it's going to make it more prone to contraction and expansion yeah. and cracking caused by that. So yeah. building physics has to be at the core of this, you know, yeah. and rather than just this stupid heavier is better idea, for instance, you know, it's yeah, 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 yeah. through it all. You know? Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's really interesting because, <clears throat> as you know, I've got some some experience with buildings that fail. <laughs> so, oh man, yeah. But but can I? So that's a difficult argument he's just made to to disagree with, right? But 
feel as if I have to. And I guess what I would say, if you stand back here, I'm just going to ignore all the technical points he's made there. But I suppose, uh, seriously though, from a from a really simplistic economic perspective, you know, we, and this is, we're all kind of adherents to Kate Roworth's, you know, donut economics and, and, and sort of planetary boundaries and all that kind of thing. And I think if we look at some of the mantras that, that good one, to start with is GDP. GDP is good because, you know, um, the more we consume, the more we the better we are. Well, not really. You know, it's the same as, um, you know, lots of things and that. And I, I, I sometimes feel that, you know, we've come up with these targets, Jeff, in the UK, 200, I think 200 quarter million new homes a year. That's what we need. Yeah, we need quarter million homes a year. Do we really? And I think what I would say is, I think there must, there, there should be a, a more rigorous qualification on what we are building and why we're building it because, I think I, I, I don't disagree that you can build you can build lean and you can build well and and that's great. But I think that we tend to do, it's a bit like fashion, isn't it? We discarded last year's um, fashion. And Peter Rickaby made a really good point in one of the podcasts that we had uh, originally did, where he said, you know, retrofit could go hand in hand with small scale uh, upgrades, you know, small extensions and so on to kind of repurpose houses. I quite like that idea. And I, I guess all I'm saying is without. With, with, without really disagreeing with what Jeff is saying is, I think we need to qualify where we need to build because I think yeah. if you build new homes, people will buy them and move out the old ones, sure. But, you know, planetary oh, boundaries. Yeah, yeah, straight up. Like, if if you've been following Quadro Social Housing, yeah. like his Twitter handle, he he decided to do a little tour of the country. He was, he's away in the northwest, uh, Rochdale and Manchester, walking around estates full of homes, Mm. that uh, were all boarded up. Like, they seem to be treating social housing like they treat hospital beds. <laughs> if you shut down a ward, you don't have to pay for the ward. And it doesn't, it's not, it's not on the, the balance sheet, as it were. Yeah. But it's, there seems to be where they can't afford to maintain beds, housing. They just yeah. shut it down, it's easier. And then eventually some developer will come in and the land yeah. will churn. But I think it comes back to what you were uh, you said, you know, we say we need X many homes, but what does need mean? Yeah. And what does homes mean? And I don't mean that facetiously. I mean, like, uh, in in more straightened times or uh, in times of greater need, one might requisition homes, mm. the empty homes, the myriad empty homes. Like, man, have you been around Battersea? Well, mm. obviously not, but Alex will attest to having yeah. been on a train the number of empty flats knocking about there that you see, uh, really? you can tell the ones that are inhabited because the balcony spaces are full of shit where people have had yeah. to put all their, because there's no storage in them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So everyone has to keep all their stuff on the balcony. That's terrible. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, there's stacks, stacks of empty properties knocking about because they've been built to be sold, uh, not to be lived in, blah, blah, blah. And yeah. it's, it's the same all over. So I yeah. think you keep, Talking about getting uh, that lady on, I can't remember her name. Oh, Sh- Shahina. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it'd be great to talk to her eventually. Yeah, uh, but I think yeah, like what they're trying to do, trying to find out what homes there are out there, what's viable to yeah to use for housing, which sounds like a preposterous thing to say or even think. It's, uh, it's like. It's like, we're feed, it's like we're feeding a it's like we're feeding a beast. It's like the GDP argument. It's like you know, does that make you happy? The fact that we've got you know, and I think you obviously have to to reconfigure that. But it's like you know, we need you know anything less than two hundred fifty thousand new homes is failure. Well, really, I'm not sure. Um, 
Well, can you find homes rather than build them? Like, would that count? Well, that's, I mean, that's that's it. And I think, it, and you know, I would argue that if you've got an empty home and uh, Sheena's, I was talking to her at Christmas time and, and I think the figure she had was 47,000 empty homes in, the, in Scotland. Now, I think in the UK there's 600,000. However, I think the real figure is something like quarter of a million because they've been empty for six months. I think there'll be a proportion of those that will be social landlords. But just on that, which is my favourite subject, one of the things I think we think about in terms of demolishing homes and, and having been around social housing for a long time is we tend to be driven by the inability to let properties rather than the properties not being viable. So when you see stuff that's been pulled down and, and stuff, and I don't want to name names, I was standing outside a oh, 50, 60, maybe even 100 houses with, with my mate Jonathan a couple of weeks ago, and they're all scheduled for demolition. They are exactly the type of houses that exist in Glasgow, you know, five, six, seven miles max away. And they're a quarter of a million, well, maybe £200,000, certainly, £180,000, £200,000. So why have they been pulled down in one area and, and and you know, really attractive in another? And I think... we. We're kind of getting confused between the inability to let and a property that isn't viable. Those are two different things, you know. And and I don't know how you bottom that. I don't know how you solve that. But that that's a that you know that's a big issue. How do you say to people that no, you can't build those that because it's actually pretty? You just have to manage the estate better. Yeah, there needs to be proper assessment done, mm. and, and it needs to take into account. And this is one of the arguments against new build in some ways. It needs to take account of the infrastructure around the building as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. We haven't really scratched the surface in terms of external works. There, there was an assessment done recently by um, academics at University College Dublin of our national development plan, um, which I've still got to get through reading. They did an embodied carbon analysis of our national development plan, including some major civic you know, uh, work, major civil works in some engineering jobs and um, roads and, and whatnot. Um, and I think there's a, there's a risk, I, I have a sneaking suspicion that there's a risk that we're, you know, by focusing on the shiny thing of the building, yeah, um, we are missing these enormous, um, yeah. vast uh, megatons of um, of embodied CO2 uh, in in road projects. Not just, of course, in terms of um, the manufacture of them, but also there's the car dependency and all that kind of crap that yeah. goes with it as well. You know, um, oh, straight up. That's a good point, Alex. I mean, you know, we 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 are you know three you know I was going to say UK at the risk of offending Jeff there, but you know, he's used to it. Is the new new build fetish a UK thing? Is it an Anglo-American thing, or or is that something that I mean, clearly you build new in in France, but is it the same extent? I think I think it's the it's the same it's the same everywhere. Um, Yeah, I think I think you're you're not even in France. You're not going to find. I was, I was just actually, sorry, I might, I might be doing a bit of a segue, but um, I'm just going to pick up a, a book I'm going to show you guys, which is uh, uh, can, How to Build or Renovate Your Home. And it's a book from the 80s um, that mm-hmm. my dad had when uh, he renovated uh, uh, our family, our, our home, when uh, when I grew up. And there's a, a section about it where it's actually talking about uh, the different types of buildings in different regions. Oh. Okay, So it'll describe the northern buildings as having these very, obviously, very, very high-pitched roofs with some sort of slates and some door on the walls. Uh, then you'll talk about Normandy and they'll have actually, cool. apparently from that age, they'll have actually, you know, like the whole like exposed wood beams mm. and then the, the, the water, sort of what's on door, then the stone from, from Brittany and even some thatching on there and everything yeah. like that. Um, and I think that there's maybe, a, I think that there's something that, 
I, I suppose my, my thing is when I'm thinking about England, when I, when I arrived in England, I just saw these like, you know, just literally when you fly into the country and you see these rows and rows of houses mm-hmm. that were built, you know, the, the Victorian times when there was an ex- absolute explosion of, 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 of population and it created this sort of a very systematic approach to, to buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in, in France, I don't think that that was the experience. I think that every region got its own sort of yeah. very much style. So like, even if you have a new build in, in France, there's going to be, uh, looking at the style of the region and it's going to be very because uh, I'm not saying the English or not but the French are very very keen on having you know the representation mm-hmm. of their, their their regions and they're going to want to make sure the buildings are built this way and you're not going to be changing around if you're going to have thatch it's going to have to be thatch if it's going to have to be uh, tiles mm-hmm. it's going to be tiles etc and I think that that's something that is probably one of the the things we're maybe not thinking about I get a sense that we're maybe trying to systematize too much and we've had a lot of conversations with a lot of different people who are trying to find solutions and I think the system I mean again I'll bring up passive house again it's a system it's a it's a methodology you know that can be applied again and again but I think people are maybe thinking about it in a too much of a a blunt term it's like mm. let's systematize let's just build these yeah. buildings they all look the same they all work the same and that's it but actually it's not the solution actually the more i'm learning about this the more i go through my own journey of learning about low energy buildings it's not about systematizing the entire thing it's about systematizing maybe some of the fundamentals yeah. but then you have to be very very understanding of what is going on in the different uh, sort of types of buildings and even different areas and cultures that, that have uh, an involvement in that as well or it's one of the fallacies actually that you get about passive house in particular um there's this perception that it's yeah. going to be the white rendered box for mm. instance or the uh the, or the the timber kit house arriving from from bavaria you know mm. um, <laughs> kind of, that kind of thing um and um it's just not the case in fact when i was lobbying five or six years ago to, uh my local council to nearly down in dublin to to get them to Make the passive house standard or equivalent um, a requirement, a planning requirement for all new homes in the county. The um, the minister for for what's now the minister for housing, effectively, uh, or one of his officials on his behalf, uh, wrote to to object um, in very strong terms. Um, and part of the argument against it was that imposing this requirement would prevent generic house designs mm. um, from from uh, from being used in the in the area. Now that's mm-hmm. completely contrary the idea yeah. of, of, of good planning but that's what the point point with passive in that regard is that you're you know you're you're meant to be just like with good architecture generally you're meant to be designing with local climate certainly local conditions in mind with size and so on in mind um but yeah you can you can build them if yeah. you want to you can build you can build a passive house out of your own filth if you want you know <laughs> um, i mean they're, they're, they're provided you can get the thermal conductivities in the air tightness right your ground you know i like makes a, f- a fascinating point there because I, I think I th- because if you you know UK holidays in the last couple of years because of COVID and pre-industri- pre-industrial uh, revolution or maybe you know, sort of pre sort of 19 uh, 20th, 20th century there's a distinct characteristic of UK housing it, regionally it looks it looks different. You've got Yorkshire, you use a certain stone, yeah. you know, they use a certain stone uh, tile, and so on. You've got Aberdeen, you use granite, and so on. There is a kind of like that. But but going back to Jeff's point, I would, I would argue that, if anything, existing ubiquitous house builders um, are, are, build, well, are, are building ubiquitous homes. I, in fact, funnily enough, I, we went to Yorkshire a year, two years ago as a COVID sort of holiday, and um, so a lovely uh, regional North Yorkshire. Uh, lovely kind of regional. Um, Wait, it's all right, Yorkshire. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's really funny, yeah. 
we took a wrong turn and we drove into this kind of cul-de-sac and the houses were exactly the same as our house. Yeah, because the builder had got a generic plan. It is a nice enough house, but it could be anywhere. There's, you know, there's nothing. So I argue that if anything, you know, standard building house types, never mind, you know, not passive house, or could 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 be anywhere. And I think as it's kind of yeah, I mean, your supply chains are are are, are, are driving that um, methodology, but it's just I mean, a bit sad. That's a culture that's been inculcated in the population. Like mm. if you look at how the industrial revolution kicked off. There was a, the, the enclosure which displaced people from yeah. the land, from the commons. So they had to make their way to the cities. The cities, they needed to find housing. So some yeah. benevolent uh, landowners decided that they would uh, create boxes for people to live in. And yeah. so like the industrial population, like the, the working classes and up, they got used to living yeah. in boxes, like identikit boxes all over. So that's yeah. why you see. I mean, that's why Alex sees the the rows and rows. That's yeah. industrial planning, yeah. like imposed upon suburbia. And you yeah. don't love it as well. There's an expression in Ireland: uh, "The burnt child loves the flame." You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, we just don't know any better. Like, yeah. I mean, that's the reason for the the loss of our food culture in this country. Like, totally. Because, like, the if you look at French cuisine, like the yeah. the whole cuisine out of France, it's all based on peasant food. Like yeah. the foundations of it. I mean, up to a point, you know, some of it's daft yeah. fancy. Very nice. <laughs> don't get me wrong. Too much cream for my taste, but you know, I don't like <laughs> the red hot chili peppers, do I? Can I, can I just ask one point? Because this, this is, and hopefully I'm, I'm right. Because I, yeah, so, like Jeff, I have an international friend. I have a French friend, Arnold. And Arnold tells, and this is this is this is a clash of cultures because we we worked together. He was um, we were both project managers at, at, at oh God, late nineties, and we've kept in touch ever since. Uh, but he said to me, he was over in Strathbongo, you know Strathbongo, uh, Dan, and he said, "Listen, do you want to come over um, for a beer?" So I said, "Yeah, love to." My brother and I. Say yeah, let's let's go for a beer now in Glasgow. You say you want to go for a beer, so I went to the local off license and I bought like a crate of lager and like a bottle of wine for his wife. <laughs> right. right, and maybe like a half bottle of whiskey. Move. Yeah. Right. So maybe like a half bottle of whiskey, right? And he meant no, literally a beer, right? He was like he had like one or two beers, but what he what he was saying was he used to do this for like a beer. And I would say, why do you do that? He said, in France, there's different uh, variations of baskets that held wine. And you might find that somebody in Normandy would use a different connotation than that. So he was from, um, he's he's from um, Dijon. And, and and he would, he would, he would, he would do that. I don't know if that's right or not. But he would say there was different uh, variations of that across regional France because it was the basket that held wine. Is that true? For the record, Duncan sticking his fingers up in the, in the air. Oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah right. like devil horns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I must admit, I'm only a, bit, a little young for for that sort of connotation there because I did not get that experience. But I grew up in the south of France. There's a lot of Brits, and they was just like this, you know, the oh, whole yeah, just yeah, holding yeah, the hand yeah, up yeah. and just doing like just yeah. down in the pint. So maybe I lost that. Maybe that's a lost culture from France, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I suppose oh, you'd have grown up in the era of le binge drinking. Mm. Oh, no, 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 that does not exist in France. It's like it, you get a few like English pubs, you know, like it's really yeah. cool that like, you get like, oh, sorry, no, they're not English pubs actually, they're Irish pubs. That is the yeah. big thing. The French love an Irish pub. So yeah. that's that's really cool. But the, the binge drinking in France does not happen. Um, yeah. 
There's not there's nothing. You do house parties in France. You don't go out like you go out clubbing in the evening. But first, you uh-huh. always have house parties. You don't just like go have a, a few yeah. pre drinks and then go out. You have a proper like uh-huh. you know, get together at home. That's very. I had the same experience in Spain. I lived in in Barcelona when I was eighteen for like five months and um teaching English conversational classes. And one of my students uh, was a guy probably in his forties, and he had um a very impressive kind of wine cellar. Um, and he um, he maintained that he'd only been drunk twice in his life. Um, and one time was when he was a 16-year-old student in Ireland and the woman whose house he was staying in said him locked last night. You <laughs> 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 can't take you home without getting off your face. You know? <laughs> oh, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, anyways, so um, so no, I'll, I'll keep on using that, Alex, because I think it's quite good. I mean, nobody, yeah, nobody in my circles good. knows. Yeah, yeah. No, nobody in my circles is going to be any different, so I'll, 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 I'll keep on with it. But yeah, I just, I just, I, just, I don't know. I just, I just, feel, I just feel that I, it's easy to get depressed. The last couple of weeks have been depressing, um, in particular. And I read a really. Did somebody send me that tweet? Um, it was a Frankie Ball tweet. Did you send me the Frankie? Yeah, Ball I sent that earlier. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was brilliant, man. That was really, that was that was awesome. Um, the reason the reason there isn't a fascist party in Britain is that those same voters are quite happy with the government. I mean, <laughs> it's like, but I think I, I, I wonder if if things are going to come to a head in terms of the ability to build new, <clears throat> the requirement for it over the coming year, two years, and the prices. And and again, getting back to energy prices, whether people will start to look at, you know, will, will the market for kitchen upgrades, flooring upgrades, you know, for fixture and furniture be, uh, be com- not compromised, but but will but be challenged by people saying, look, I've, I've, I'm paying three grand. I was talking to somebody the other day saying, like, I'm, I'm in a new build, 2,700 quid next year to heat my home. And he's saying, well, I'm 36. And I wonder whether we might find that there's, you know, we 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 start to now take retrofits easily. And you always said this, Dan, from the middle when the middle classes start to get the pinch, things start to change. Yeah, that's the only time like any yeah. of this works. What yeah. what I think is going to be interesting is something we keep coming up against in talking with folk uh, past twenty thirty five. Mm. So like the standard for low energy retrofit, like people keep complaining about it because yeah. like like the identikit housing like we like a standard in this in the british isles but like we 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 appear to love the rules like we appear to love hating the rules as well you yeah. know don't tell me what to do it's my castle etc but yeah. like from on high we love that sort of diktat past 2035 it's as much a burden as it is a solution in many instances so lisa pasquale was talking about it i think when we had her on yeah okay it's a brilliant set of guidelines and principles that yeah. are, it's not appropriate in all circumstances and there's no way to to mitigate those situations where it's just not appropriate and you can achieve an equal or better outcome without following it that's going to be a problem if we have to take the if we end up taking this path because it's just not flexible enough and because we don't have a state that's up for doing actual governing or doing the job properly. I think, Unless I think you're talking about like sending folk Rwanda and that. Uh, like <laughs> they're just not interested. I think part of what the missing point here, Dan, is that these standards are and everything, they're all well and good, but they're not a substitute for having 
designers and yeah. who actually understand buildings, right? Yeah. Um, oh, most definitely, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, there needs to be that ability for somebody. To, people need to be sufficiently qualified and experienced and have a good enough grasp of this stuff that they can they can use these tools to the extent that they, that they need them. Um, it's a common theme of the conversations we've had, sorry, Alex. But like uh, the fact that no one touches building physics, oh, like yeah. no one at all. Sorry, sorry, love. No, no, no. It's just no. You, you have to write. But it's also the, the commercial imperative is also the big problem. Like, I remember, I think it was it was Sarah who said that when she was doing all this great stuff on the house, you know, she's all her flat, she's put in um, triple glazing, she's done all this sort of stuff, and then when someone came in to do the valuation. Um, and she asked about, you know, how would this impact the, uh, the the value of her her flat? I mean, it might be her, but uh, basically the guy said, well, it won't because here like, everyone's just interested in getting a property. So actually, you make the effort of doing something that's really good, you know, that technically should, in my opinion, like because of this whole thing about in the UK where you want yeah. to be sure to like you're building something to as an investment. In places like London, it's not going to be the same everywhere else, but you're actually doing something that has absolutely no financial benefit to yourself. So you might as well just completely forget it, just continue just paying a bit of money and then hope that your property price is going to go up enough that you it's going to weigh it's going to cover way more than than your bills and eventually, you know, like the, the cost of your house, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So, but that, so I think that's the problem. I think that's the problem is that but, we're just too focused on the commercial imperative. But and actually there should be some value. Sorry then, but there should be some value or we should be working towards giving some value to actually doing the proper retrofits or or actually buying buildings that have um, all the, the proper, you know, the, the, you know, a pa- uh, proper passive house standards to, to go to the, you know, the absolute top level. So um, you, I think you're on the proverbial money there, though. And I think we, like in keeping with what we're talking about here, I think there's the there's something in the air. There might be a switch about because... Like we've talked about EPC ratings are going to hit buy-to-let landlords. Mm. Buy-to-let landlords are still getting stuck in. Some of them a little in a bit of ignorance, but within the next two years, the mortgage lenders are going to come down hard on people. They're not going to be mm. prepared to lend unless they are certain that either the landlord's got the capital to buy the property and do it up, or uh, they're convinced that these regulations are just going to get done in. Mm-hmm. But I was talking to a, an estate agent the other day who knows this area. And I asked them, like, oh, this is where we live. What do you reckon? What 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 do you reckon this would be worth where me and Cassie stay? And we talked about, like, what made it valuable, you know, with the highest bit in the area, good light, nice floor plan, stuff like that. And we talked about uh, schools and proximity to train stations. Two years ago, proximity to train station was be all and end all. Not absolutely, yeah. but, like, big, big thing. Now, no one's asking. Really? Like, proximity to train station could add thousands to the value of your home. I can't remember looking at a place in Catford that was 10 minutes walk from a train station, like, or maybe a little bit more even. And like, there was, you know, when we were looking to buy this place, this is seven, eight years ago, there could have been between five and eight grand's differential in what we would have paid for the property for an equivalent closer to the train station. Now that ain't a thing. Mm. schools are still the same you know mm. all the other stuff amenities like what you were talking about jeff transport links more generally but people aren't commuting in the same way mm. so i wonder so long way of getting around to it whether energy efficiency is gonna have an impact in that way in the very near future because when people start paying them bills come christmas time this year 
Like mm-hmm. people are going to feel things very differently. It's, it's, it's like in some ways it already is, and the opinion of individual estate agents should be taken with a large dose of salt. I think you know um, uh, this, the data. London, Alex is, is absolutely spot on. That London has always been tended to be an exception to all conventional mm-hmm. rules, just because it's the kind of market where you you pay whatever you can for whatever piece of crap you can get mm-hmm. your hands on. You know, um, but but there's, there's data from the UK, very clear data. Nearly mm. 10 years old at this stage, it shows a very clear correlation between the energy rating of the property and the actual sales price achieved. Very clear, uh, with the exception of London. Um, so, and of course, as you were sort of hinting at, these things are not set in stone. Um, mm. So, you know, the, 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 yeah, you may not see uh, the benefit if you sell it now, uh, if you sell it tomorrow, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But people who buy a property are not thinking about selling it tomorrow, presumably. <laughs> you know um you're thinking about you know i don't know seven ten twenty years time or more you know um and um and that could be a completely different landscape at, the, at that point i do think though the energy price thing i mean i um and i i've mentioned this i think to you duncan and in, 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 or maybe on the, on the chat group between us all uh i think we're seeing in i'm renting a a, a flat with a, with a combined heat and power plant um providing a centralized heating effectively district heating but you know at a building level and we're seeing uh, uh we got a, a price increase last week from nine cents per kilowatt hour for the, for the heat to 28.8 cents um out of the blue so a tripling of the price and the whole WhatsApp group for the building, for the three apartment buildings that we're living, are everybody's just up in arms about it, and seeing mm-hmm. some people showing how much how much their their heating bills have gone up. In some cases, people are paying ten or fifteen euro or more a day for heating wow. apartments. You know, um, Jesus wept. So, and and the concern I have there with district heating, which I've had for a long time, is we can't switch suppliers. Mm-hmm. You know, we are tied to one supplier. Yeah, and I think I think it comes back to that point that you know uh, consideration of cost. Energy cost has to be a consideration when we're talking about this stuff too, because you won't win mm. people over otherwise, you know. Mm. Well, I mean, this it all comes back to like the essence of what we're always banging on about is demand reduction. There is no other way in terms of the embodied carbon when it comes to construction and construction methods, not just materials, and like the the state of the building, the used the the building in its used state uh, mm. post occupancy. And, and we're all right in that regard, actually. I mean, you know, uh, because it's a low energy apartment building. Um, so um, I think there's a fascinating piece of academic research, if any academics are listening now, that you haven't thought of this since we're probably, you know, um, well, well behind the, the, the curve on this, I'd say, um, to do an assessment, a, mon- uh, a, a, a monitoring study of, of energy use in buildings, uh, taking account of price increases mm. and what happens to people's energy usage. Because in our case, we have an app which shows us our daily usage, the amount, the amount we're spending daily on energy. Um, and we've been able so far mostly to adjust to a very, a very min- minimal increase in heating use um, mm-hmm. because we've got a, a very low energy apartment. It's really just hot water usage in, in our mm-hmm. case, you know. So um, uh, that, that I think is going to be a fascinating uh, kind of live, you know. Uh, massive studies potentially looking to see what 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 impact we see high energy prices having now on um, on people's people's behaviour. You know, and, and there was a piece we spoke about. I think we spoke about this, and I can't remember when we were talking. Is it Thursday? I can't remember. But there was a piece in um, Inside Housing, which I think was primarily based on London schemes, but 
I think it had a seven, an average seven hundred percent rise in in cost. Uh, average, I mean, it's just insane. And I agree. I think you know, like the concept of district heating. I spoke. I know I've been over to Denmark uh, twice, and I love the concept. But I think you're right. I think you know, it's one. It's one. It's the one. It's the one point I would probably agree in terms of conservative policy about you know market choices and, and if you're tied to one supplier then you know uh, and you're getting six seven hundred pound price increase uh, seven hundred percent price increase that's 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 toxic but then I mean something like district heating shouldn't be delivered in those sorts of marketized terms Good like point. it's just like that ain't that doesn't yeah. make any sense that's like having a, a water company that you can't choose yeah like what we have now <laughs> like it, this it yeah. doesn't make sense it's like the the national the the uh, privatization the rail network yeah. oh funny that don't work <laughs> like we've all experienced it like yeah. we've all we've all been on the trains in the uk like it's it's a parlor state and it it's yeah yeah uh, it just what, what, makes sense. And what wasn't the best? Wasn't when they, was it the southeast that was taken over by the by? Didn't it end up becoming one of the better performing ones when it was? Yeah, yeah. essentially state controlled. Was it? I can't remember if it was southeast or it was the east coast. East coast, uh, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it did, and then they yeah. privatized it again as soon as they could. <laughs> because, like, when you can't have some bite in your dogma, can you? Yeah. Well, good point. Yeah. He's, he's, uh, he's, rail he's industry so. bites dogma. <laughs> That's the story, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I think district heating is really interesting because uh, I was talking to the guy who manages this building and he said some of the buildings that he looks after, they they use district heating and they pay so little really? compared to... Because I was talking to... This is my like perpetual conversation about how do you retrofit a leasehold block? Mm. Like, what do you do? And he he was just extolling the virtues of district heating. It's really easy to manage. It's expensive to get put in, but the costs are so low. And mm. this, we were talking about it a fortnight ago. I'm going to see him next week, actually. Uh, so I'll ask him about the cost increase. Because I wonder how much of an impact is the, the, the increase in energy price? Like, are people getting gouged like Uber mm. after a New York subway shooting? Mm. Like, you know, like... Yeah. Are they just ramping up the prices because they know they can get away with it? Yeah. Like, is it because their margins are so fine to begin with and they were under-costing it in the first instance rather than just finding a, a, a sort of a manageable, yeah. balanced price? Like, who knows? Because, like, it's so opaque, all this stuff. I mean, do you know anything about the economics of where you live, Jeff? Um, I mean, we, we I, I know what they told us. Um, and they, they explained that it was, you know, that it was due to... Volatility of the current situation, and the, and 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 that uh, they had, I think they'd had fixed prices from a couple of years ago, which uh, which yeah. was lower and which expired. But you know the cost, that cost per unit, um, compared to say gas in Ireland, which would be the kind of dominant fuel in in uh, in the urban uh, areas, um, is is as high. You know, um, the, the cost initially was um, pre. This increase was was high enough. Um, uh, I I struggle to see how it could be justified to be a, a you know threefold increase. It doesn't really seem to make much sense to me. Mm. Um, but yeah, we need to we need need to do some more digging on it really to understand. I love the I love the way how various people are making the you know capitalizing on the war in Ukraine and and, and how people can actually use a situation to 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 justify anything. I think is yeah, I'm quite sure prices have increased, but 
have increased by 700% because of that. I'm not sure. So let's... Well, on <laughs> yeah, on that note, <clears throat> that was good fun. That yeah. was good. Yeah, yeah, we'll do... Uh, perhaps we'll record a little intro yeah. at some point or uh, just yeah. to, to bookend it and just say, you know, late on Friday. Uh, on Friday. I must say, I'm a bit disappointed we haven't found the solution. I thought tonight was just going to be a free conversation. <laughs> all, all the problems... For everything. Well, a couple more drinks and you never know. <laughs>